so glad you could join us for mornings at YCVC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. Good morning and welcome church here in person with eyes that I can see and uh, online with eyes that uh, I can only see in the spirit uh, and perhaps later by clicking onto Facebook. Um, I hope you're hungry this morning. Um, as we were praying before uh, uh, our gathering this morning, it's hard to reshape our language. I'm so trained in praying before church, but we are the church, so I'll try and avoid saying that. But praying before our gathering this morning at 9.30, which you're all welcome to be a part of. Um, yeah, the, the idea of fresh bread was mentioned in that prayer, and I just feel compelled by that thought, uh, remembering the manner that, God gave in the desert that that was a daily thing Uh, and that yesterday's bread was a bit mouldy by the time it came to the next day if you tried to gather too much but that God gives bread daily and remembering that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to to pray uh, that said give us today our daily bread Uh, and so I hope you're hungry this morning for, for spiritual nourishment but for fresh bread from the ancient one and his ancient text uh, and and, and the, I think that idea of fresh bread is so important because uh, the, the, the written text is ancient. It hasn't changed in the last few thousand years. But the Spirit is alive and active and, and, and brings this ancient word to us as fresh bread. Um, and so I hope you're hungry this morning. Uh, the other thought before we actually start the, the message this morning, uh, this is all pre-intro intro, um, is that this is another, a message where I feel uh, the enemy has sought to interrupt the preparation of throughout the week. Um, and, we're, and we're talking about love as one another as the church and I feel that there's a, a, a common thing that happens whenever uh, we come to a place where we're going to be preaching about the church, learning and growing to love one another. Um, that the enemy wants to interrupt that. Um, So he tries, but it just is a reminder really for me that this is fundamental to what God wants of the church and in complete opposition of what the enemy wants to the church. Um, And so uh, don't let this ancient text, especially this ancient word, of course, yeah, we've got to love one another, be stale and mouldy this morning. Let's come to it hungry and seeking fresh bread. Uh, so this morning uh, is, is part two of our series, The Passion of Christ According to John. Uh, we're, we're returning to John where we finished up last year uh, as we walked through the good news of Jesus according to John. We thought we'd give it a fresh title to do the, the last bit of that. But this is the last moments of Jesus' life and the bit we're in at the moment is Jesus' kind of last conversations with his followers before his death and resurrection. And, and so he's having a lot of deep and meaningful conversations with his, his uh, band of closest followers. Uh, These are the things that Jesus deems to be important for his followers to know and to hear before his death and resurrection. And so last week we talked about being off the map. Kind of Jesus led his disciples uh, outside of all of their expectations of what their life was going to be like and then said, I'm leaving. Uh, And so he, he, he talked about some things that were important once we're off the map. Uh, in that sense. And, and, and so last week, the three key words were to believe, to obey, and to listen. 
Now, I mentioned this this morning, not just to, to recap last week, but to say that these themes continue throughout this whole conversation that Jesus has. We don't stop believing, obeying and listening this week. We, we, we hold on to them and this idea of belief, this idea of obedience and, and certainly this idea of listening to the Holy Spirit continue. We bring them forward with us. But, but this week's sermon title is called Love and Hate. Love and Hate. And so Jesus has, has some things to teach us in this conversation he had with his disciples about, about the place of love and the place of hate when it comes to following him. This passage, this, this chapter begins uh, with one of the, the, the most famous metaphors of following Jesus in all the Bible, one of my most favorite pieces of scripture uh, where Jesus talks about he is the vine and we are the branches. Uh, and and um, I love this bit of scripture and I've preached on it a lot and so I felt compelled uh, today to, to not center there but to center on the rest of the chapter. But, but we, we need to understand all of John 15 in light of this image where Jesus talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches. In, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this, this imagery of us being branches that need to remain in the vine, the true vine that is Jesus Christ, if we're all enabled to be fruitful, pervades throughout the rest of the chapter. And so then in, in verse 9 where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. We, we don't forget about this branch and vine imagery. We are remaining in the love of Jesus like a branch has to remain in the vine for sustenance and existence and fruitfulness. We need to hold on to this idea as we go through. And so we're going to start with that thought. We're going to talk about love and hate. And we're going to end with that thought of remaining in Jesus. And so the key here that Jesus wants his disciples to know is that they are to love one another. And so when we talked about obedience last week and when, when we talk about obedience to the commands of Jesus, one of the few things that Jesus explicitly commands, he gives lots of instructions that we might call commands, but one of the, the few things that Jesus says, this is my command, is these very words, love one another. So in verse 12 to, to 17, as Neil read for us, it says... My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. And now, so I don't reread that because Neil did a bad job. He did a great job. But I want to read, start there and end there to say that all of that stuff about being chosen, about being appointed to bear fruit, about being friends of Jesus is bookended by his command to love each other. So 
the, the words used here for love, are, if you've hung around a church for a bit, you would have heard this Greek word, agape, love. Agape is, is kind of one of the Greek words, there, there's several Greek words for love, but agape is the Greek word for the deepest kind of love. It's, it's to prefer the other above the self. It's to prefer the benefit, the blessing of the other above the self to the point of sacrifice. And so this is the call to the church, to love each other, to love one another with that agape love. Now, yes, we are called as the church to love our neighbor as ourself. That, that is fundamental to what it means to be the church. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Obviously, it's part of that. He's saying to the church, to the nucleus that will birth the church, the disciples, you are to love one another, to love each other. What he's not saying, and, and I can't stress that this is more important in this season than, than, than to say it this way, what he's not saying is that we've been called to agree about everything. Th- that's not what true love and unity looks like. True love and unity isn't universal agreement about every facet of life, politics, even faith. And so what happens too often in the church is that we try and live in peace, love and unity. We, 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 we grasp that that's what we're meant to do. But instead of walking the uncomfortable, challenging, difficult road towards that, we end up settling for passive hostility. We have this kind of, oh, those people are wrong about stuff. But peace and love and unity... So I won't won't engage in that, and I won't engage in love in that either. I will just sit in passivity whilst maintaining my hostility. But the reality is we're allowed to disagree about stuff. We're allowed to disagree about left and right, and that can mean whatever you want it to mean. We're allowed to disagree about up and down. Maybe that's less confronting. (laughs) We're allowed to disagree so long as we do it in a way that loves one another. It's okay to have the challenging conversations. See, it's passive hostility is not love, peace, and unity. The absence of, of, of challenging conflicting conversations amongst the church is not peace. You might be able to go, like the church is more than a gathering, but you might be able to go to a church gathering or a church meeting and think, oh, no one argued. But it's not peace if we're all sitting inside going, oh, there's so much I want to say, but I'm, I'm, mm, peace, love and unity, push it down. And scripture does say, in your anger, do not sin. And so there is a season in our lives that if we can't address that tension within us in a way that is loving towards one another, to hold on to it, to pray about it until we can. 
We must love and, and not hate. And this is, like, this is of key importance. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus, well, let's go back to verse 34. He's already said this command, a new command. I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Sorry about the crackling. Uh, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is to be the thing that is meant to be the primary identifier of the disciples of Jesus. Let me say that again. Our love for one another in Jesus' eyes is to be the thing that is the primary identifier of the disciples of Jesus. Not universal agreement. Of course, if we're all fixing our eyes on Jesus, there's a convergence of thoughts and belief that centre around him that we hope to have an enormous degree of unity of thought about. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, towards the end of that letter, says to two women, Euodia and Syntyche, I urge you to agree together. Some translations make that be of one mind together in the Lord. That's not... I want you to think the same thing about everything. We don't have to have the same favourite meal from McDonald's. We don't all have to like McDonald's. We don't have to take our coffee the same way. I mean, I know I'm mentioning trivial things, but at some point, those things get more and more important, but they never get so important that hate becomes an okay option. The church is called to be a diverse group of people that in ordinary circumstances may not even associate together, but through their love for Jesus are able to not merely associate, but to genuinely love each other deeply. Let me say that again. So I, I really feel this sense of... And, and this isn't just Yas Community Baptist Church. Of course, this is, this is all about how we relate together as one church family. But it's also about how we relate together as individuals who are part of the global church of Jesus Christ. It's also about how YCBC relates together with the Anglican Church of the Yas Valley, with Encounter Church, with the Vine Church, with the Uniting Church uh, in Yas, with the Catholic Church in Yas and beyond that. We are called to be a diverse group of people that in ordinary circumstances may not even associate together. But through our deep love for Jesus are able to not merely associate but to genuinely love each other deeply. That's who we're called to be. The key here though, and we can't miss this, if we go back to verse 12 and read it again, Jesus says, I'm in the wrong chapter now, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The key here is not just love. It's not just even agape love, that strongest of Greek words to, to de define the thing that we in English just flatten out as love. It's not even just agape love 
that defines the kind of love we are to have for one another within the family of the followers of Jesus Christ, but it is the love that Jesus loved his disciples with. Jesus loved with a sacrificial love, of course. John 14 talks about, and we, this, was, this was last year, sorry, John 13 talks about uh, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Uh, we, we explored that passage in November last year. You can go back and, and retouch with the message about that or just read the passage. But, but the phrase, before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, we're told he now showed them the full extent of his love. That the, the act of serving and washing the disciples' feet was an expression of the extent of his love. This mind-boggling moment in which, if it really was living up to the, the dynamics of who was glorious and worthy of worship then, then everyone in the room would have been worshipping and serving Jesus, but he's the one who gets up from the table, wraps a towel around himself and washes the disciples' feet. It's a sacrificial love. But to think about how we might love as Jesus loved, we actually have to think about who he loved. We touched on this when we looked at John 13, but in that expression of love of washing his disciples' feet, Jesus loved Judas, who would betray him unto his death. He got the same love as everybody else at that table. He loved Peter, who would deny him, and the thing is that Jesus knew this stuff about them. It wasn't that he loved them and then, oh no, I shouldn't have loved them because they were nasty. Jesus knew this, and he loved Judas, and he loved Peter, who would deny that he'd ever met him three times. He loved the other ten who would scatter in his moment of deepest trial. He loved all his disciples in the moments where it was true to say of them, we know it was true because Jesus said it, you of little faith. He loved them then. He loved James and John when they thought that the Christian response to people who opposed Jesus was to call down fire from heaven. He still loved them. He corrected them. He rebuked them for that. But he still loved them. He loved a generation he called unbelieving and perverse. He even said in that moment, how much longer must I put up with you? But he loved them anyway. He loved those that the religious establishment labelled as sinners. That they were uh, so, in the eyes of the religious establishment of the Pharisees, uh, so uh, deeply sinful that that was the thing that they were to be identified by. Not their name, not any redeemable thing that they had done in life, not their personhood, but simply sinners. That's who Jesus loved and spent most of his time with, who sat at tables with, who ate with. I couldn't find that in your... Shush. That's who Jesus loved. He loved not just what or who he could agree with and whose behaviour he could affirm. He loved them and he loved us to the point that he gave his life for these people and for us. 
He just simply loved. And so Jesus calls us to love one another. I'm called to love you. You were called to love me. You're called to love the person to your left and your right and behind you and all around you. Reflecting on uh, the good news of Jesus uh, in his letters, uh, the same John who wrote the gospel in in, uh, 1 John 3.16, even though John's not responsible for the verse markings, he liked to land things around 3 and 16 that were profound. Um, In 1 John 3.16, we're told, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so that's another way of saying, if this is the kind of love that Jesus displayed, then that's the kind of love we're to display to our brothers and sisters, to lay down our lives. Now, Jesus, that literally meant his death, of course, but for us it it means laying down ourselves, our preferences, our prejudices. This is a big one for me, laying down the belief that I am always right and if someone disagrees with me, then fundamentally and upfront, they must be wrong. doesn't mean that I end up, or you end up necessarily being wrong. That's part of what it means to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters, is to lay down the belief that I am the fountain of all truth. If he loved, then we are called to love. The way he loved is how we're called to love, and that is laying down our lives. In in further on in John, sorry, one John chapter four, he goes on to unpack this thought a little bit more in verses nineteen to twenty-one. And he says, We loved because he first loved. And so whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, and so this language, brother or sister, uh, this is talking about the church. As I said before, yes, we're called to love our neighbour. Yes, this would be true of that dynamic, but this is specifically talking about the, the followers, the family of the church. We love because he first loved. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so John's reflecting on this command that Jesus has given his church to love one another. He's reflecting on the the love that Jesus demonstrated to the world. He's reflecting that our capacity to love only comes because he first loved us. That our love for God and our love for brother and sister are intimately connected. And so the point is, if we hate a brother or sister, I'm not saying if we disagree, because we've already, we've already covered that ground. We can disagree. We can disagree passionately and enthusiastically. But if we hate a brother or sister, 
part of the family, then that shows a deficiency in our love for God. And our, I would say, to go beyond what John is saying, to some degree, although we love because he first loved, and our capacity of receiving God's love. Now, I don't say that to shame myself or others, but to say, well, that's, that's you know, we've got to dig down to the root of the problem. If we're filled with hate for a brother or sister, then we, then we need to go back to the source of love. We need to pour out our love to God and get refreshed at the well, so to speak. Hate for one another reveals a deficiency in that love connection with God. And so I said today was about love and hate, and so where's the love component of that? Well, hopefully by now uh, I've said it enough, Jesus has said it enough, that we grab that the idea is to love one another. We're called to love one another, full stop. We're called to love even when you are convinced, here's the thing, you have to love me, you are called to love me, even when you are convinced that you are right and I am wrong. You are called to love me even when my behavior offends you. You are called to love me even when I fall short of your expectations of me. Now, this does not mean that anything goes or that we have to just agree to disagree. But it means that whatever may come, we continue to love one another relentlessly. Whatever may come, we continue to love one another relentlessly. That's the call of us as the church of Jesus. And so in the context of love, Jesus almost jarringly switches the conversation to hate. I mean, it's, it's helpful for us that the publishers of most of our Bibles have kind of put a, put a heading there to separate that off. Uh, um, but if we were to smush it together from verse 17 to 18 without pausing for a heading, um, and, yeah, little fun fact, Greek was written without even spaces between the words in ancient times, let alone punctuation, full stops, paragraphs, and things like that. It was just a... <laughs> so at least in... John's recording of the event, the phrasing of Jesus would go, this is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. This flip from love to hate is jarring. But Jesus, in the midst of talking about love, wants to offer his followers a warning. He's saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but, have chosen, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. I think maybe what happens sometimes... Uh, amongst the church, and I'm not saying our church family here necessarily, but I think sometimes what happens amongst the church 
big picture wise is we're too busy hating each other to give the world a chance to get in on the action. Jesus says the world will hate believers because of his name. He does say some will believe. It's not all bad. Just as some believed Jesus and became his followers in his earthly ministry, Jesus is saying some will believe you because some believed me. It's not all bad. The thing is, we can't be surprised when people hate us because of Jesus' name and we can't think it's all about us when people believe us either. It's all about Jesus. But he's warning his disciples, this, this whole section of, of deep and meaningful conversation is about warning his disciples what life might be like once he's moved on from being with them in person. And, and so here, hate is the opposite of agape love. Uh, I mentioned to someone after church last week about not being a, a Greek expert, and they're like, oh, yes, you are. And I was like, well... I have to confess, I just read other people who are Greek expert what they say about the words. I don't read the Greek. I'm sorry if I gave you the impression that I was reading a Greek manuscript and knew deeply what all the words meant. But, but the, the Greek word here for hate is, if you read the description of what that means, it's almost exactly opposite of what agape love is. It's to, to rather than prefer the other above the self, it is to de- detest the other to value little, to despise. And so Jesus says that's what we may experience because we bear his name. And that's the key thing. Just as our love is to be as Jesus loved, this hatred from the world is because we bear his name. Peter was reflecting on this in his letter. To the churches and in verse uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 to 20 he had this to say for it is commendable if someone bears up under pain or of unjust suffering because of, they are conscious of God and so Peter's saying it's commendable if you you suffer because your focus is towards God and to jump it back into our passage for today because you bear the name of Jesus But he goes on to say, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And so what Peter is touching on here is not all the stuff that we perceive as hate is because we bear his name. We might get hated for our political affiliation, but but that's not because we bear the name of Jesus. And I hope... For, for all the followers of Jesus, that our political affiliation, at least in some sense, even though we might end up at complete opposite ends of the spectrum, I pray that whatever your political beliefs may be, they at least come out of your uh, relationship with Jesus in some shape or form. But if we're hated because of a political affiliation, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> if we're hated because of our stance on certain medications or, or, or relevant things in the world right now, That's not what he's talking about, though I hope our response to come from that flows out of our love for Jesus. If we're hated for being a jerk, another confession, I'm full of confessions this morning, sometimes I want to put it in past tense, but, you know, as if it was 
last experience of me being a jerk was 10 years ago, but sometimes I'm a jerk and if people hate me for that, I can't say, oh, people are hating me because I bear the name of Jesus. That's a beating that I deserved for being a jerk. If we're hated for our driving ability or the way that we drive amongst the street, if we cut someone off and they beep the horn, that's not, oh, more persecution for bearing the name of Jesus. The only way that works is if you've, you know, you've, you've very publicly put your affiliation to Jesus on your bumper and you've driven very well and carefully and loving towards others and then they're honking at you and telling you to get off the road. Then maybe that's one driving-related circumstance in which you can say, I'm bearing hate for the name of Jesus. If we bear hatred for the historical wrongs of the church, that's not what Jesus is talking about. The church has done and sadly continues to do in some circumstances some horrible things to people. If we get a beating for that in the media, in people's opinions, that's not hatred for bearing the name of Jesus. That's kind of like the corporate equivalent of being a jerk. Jesus is saying that some people will hate you merely for the fact that you follow Jesus and we're going to have to learn to deal with that. And so what do we do with that information? It's like, you know, I'm about to leave this morning and my last word to you is, oh, by the way, before I leave, I just want to catch you. Some people are going to hate you. What, what are we meant to do with that information, Jesus? Because he doesn't give us the fix, does he? Jesus doesn't say some people will hate you, but here's how to fix it. I checked. I even read a few chapters forward. I checked. He hasn't fixed it. Some people as relentlessly loving as we seek to be towards one another and to our neighbour as ourself, will hate us because we dare to bear the name of Jesus. And so Jesus wasn't telling us so that he could fix it. Jesus is simply warning and preparing his disciples for what is to come. But I think how we apply that to ourselves is, is to remember that we don't go to the world to fill our tank up. Uh, we don't... Is anyone... Are we familiar with that kind of idea, that our love tank? That, that you know, we each have a, a need to be loved and welcomed and accepted and um, approved of. Some of us have very leaky tanks. Some of us have, you know, tanks that one thumbs up will be enough love to endure decades. I wish that was me. It's not. So we don't go to the world to have our love tank filled. I'm doing this because that's where my love tank is. That's the wrong place to go. But so often we do, don't we? We go to the world and we want our love tank filled up. That might be like clicks, likes, on the wrong side of my phone, clicks and likes and, and, and 
things from the world. That might be high fives, that might be pats on the back. I think it's what drives that sense of we just need the world to know that we're normal people. Uh, and I think there's a good heart to that. We want the world to know that we don't hate them, that we love them and, and all of that. But the world is the wrong place to go to fill our love tank. We go to the world with love, not for love. I think that's what Jesus is setting his disciples up for here, and that's us. We go to the world filled with his love for them, but we don't go expecting to be loved. We don't go with an empty tank hoping that we'll get enough clicks, likes, affirmation and love from the world to fill that up. We go into the world, and uh, this is what our friend um, Keith Todd is often saying, that we go into the world with soft hearts and thick skin. We want our hearts to be so soft and loving, but we need to, we need to have a bit of thick skin in the world to endure what may come that Jesus has warned us of here. We counter hate with love, without any expectation that we're going to receive love back. And so I'm left with the question, I don't know about you, but I'm left with the question of how. Jesus, sitting with his disciples, has said, You know, you followers of me, you're to love one another the same way that I've loved you. Uh, There is is no other standard of love than than Jesus. John says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus died for us. There's, There's no higher bar. I watched a little bit of the women's high jump last night. They can jump super high. But there is no higher bar of love to try and jump over than the love that Jesus has for you and me. But he says to us that we're to love each other the same way he loved us. Now, I want to say you're a beautiful group of people. Even you people online are, are beautiful and so worthy of love. But I still, you know, this might be my weakness. I still go to Jesus. How am I going to do that? It all sounds very noble, but how? And then you want to add to that that I'm meant to go into the world with a full bucket of love to share with the world and my expectation should be that they're going to hate me. That sounds wonderful, and thank you, Jesus, for giving me an example of that, but how am I, Nicholas Gordon Barber, going to possibly do that? Now, maybe you're feeling super inspired this morning because I'm not the world's worst preacher and you're thinking, yeah, let's do it, let's love one another and let's, let's endure this hate and keep loving. Maybe you're pumped up for it this morning, but in 20 minutes' time or so, this service is going to be over and you're going to have to deal with real people, not the imaginary people And you're still going to have to do it. Well, you're still called to do it, I should say. As I was thinking about that, I I remembered and searched for a prayer I'd seen on the internet. Um, I couldn't find it actually in in either the Anglican prayer book or the Presbyterian Methodist. Um, I couldn't find it in any. 
of those ancient, beautiful books of prayer. So I had to find it on the internet. And maybe you can empathise, or if that's the right word, maybe you connect with this prayer. Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish or overindulgent. And I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. That's how I kind of feel about this stuff. Right here, preaching it in church, inspired by God's word. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. But I'm going to walk out the door of this building People are going to say stuff. People are going to think stuff. People might even look at me sideways. And I'm going to find it hard to do it. I'm going to need a lot more help when I'm not in this pulpit zone. So how? I said we'd come back to where we started. Jesus says in John 15, 5, and this is what, as I said, pervades the entire passage. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 9, he gives that more specific application and he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And so Jesus is saying, remain here in his love, focused on his love, dwelling on his love, being filled with his love, eyes fixated, locked on his love. Refusing to allow our attention to be drawn to the left or the right. And that can mean whatever you mean about it. And by that, I don't mean that Jesus is a centrist. If you'd ask me which side of politics Jesus sat on, I would say he doesn't. If any political party or ideology thinks they can capture what it means in the mind of Jesus, then let me just say we're falling woefully short. Not that there aren't beautiful glimpses of Jesus right across that spectrum. We remain in him and his love, refusing to allow our attention to be drawn to any place other than that. Of course, that doesn't mean don't engage in the world, don't be up to date with the relevant situation. It doesn't mean that the, uh, the scholars who, who say, you know, we need to engage the world with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other so that we're relevant, but also holding on to the truth. Uh, I'm not saying that that's untrue, but I'm saying that our attention cannot be more in the newspaper than it is on Jesus' love. Our attention cannot be more on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, cannot be more on what so-and-so is saying whether we agree with it or not, than it is on fixing 
on Jesus' love. Focused on it, dwelling on it, being filled on it. Because that is the only possible way that us fallen, human, far too often hate-filled creatures can possibly live out loving one another in the midst of the world that we live in. I look forward to the day where Jesus calls his church home, where we fully manifest being the beautiful bride, body, family, household, whatever metaphor we want to use from the scripture of God. I look forward to that day. But let's not... Reject what is now because of that picture. But let's seek to see that beautiful picture manifest in tiny little ways. Let's believe in the church that Jesus sees when he says, a pure and spotless bride. Let's believe in that rather than getting disillusioned with the way we might see it now. Let's remain in him. Let's learn to be that church. We'll never be perfect at it, but we can grow from one level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory, looking more and more like Jesus day in, day out, week in, week out. Amen? So Jesus, our Lord and our God and our Saviour, we come to you now and we say, help us. I don't want to leave here, Lord, with the illusion that I have the capacity to do in my own strength what I've just spoken about. Or that the efforts the lip service I give to loving one another is the fullness of the vision that you have for this church. And so Jesus, we fix our eyes on your love. We fix our eyes on you who are love. You are the author, you are the perfecter of our faith. You are the perfecter of what it means to love one another. So we pray that you would help us to shift from any degree of settling for passive hostility. Wherever that may be present within our church, between churches, between individuals. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. We thank you that as Paul described it, in our weakness, in our complete 
inability to come close to that, that your strength is made perfect. Where we discover within ourselves the awareness that we are bearing hatred towards a brother or sister, lead us to you. Lead us deeper into your love for us and our love for you. Lead us to the place where we are, that beautiful, diverse church. That despite our differences and disagreements, we relentlessly and outrageously love one another. And Jesus, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.